Hello, and welcome to the Food Freedom Body Love Method, a podcast designed to challenge our current beliefs about food, weight, health, and beauty, repair our relationship with our physical selves, and provide inspiration for living beautifully in the skin we're in. Hey, welcome back. Today is the first podcast not in my masterclass series. So this podcast originated with a seven day turned eight day with a bonus class masterclass series on diet culture and our beliefs around weight, beauty and health. And it was a hit. So I'm going to try this on for size and keep going with it on a fairly regular basis. I will say I don't have a structure for this yet. I don't know how it's going to go. I am really of the belief that I just need to work, you know, not from a schedule or a to-do list or from um, obligation, but out of inspiration and providing you with the best information, the best value, um, the best inspiration when it comes to this work. And so I'm not sure what the structure will end up looking like. We'll see how that plays out. So just stick with me for a little bit. Today is all about weight loss. In a one-on-one session last week, I found myself saying, I'm not against weight loss, you know, and I think it bears a discussion because often those of us in the body positive, body acceptance world get accused of being like pro-obesity or like glamorizing or promoting obesity and being against weight loss or against thin bodies. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, So today that's what I want to talk about. I'm not against weight loss. What am I against? Um, What I'm against is the extremes that women go to to lose weight and what they do to themselves and what they give up in themselves in the process of attempting to lose weight, in the pursuit of weight loss. What I'm against is the ideal that losing weight is something to be proud of because so many women lose weight, again, through sacrifice, by hurting themselves, by engaging in unnatural, unhealthful behaviors, because they're sick, because they're in a mentally unwell place. That's what I'm against. Um, I'm not against, you know, in the, in the process of doing the work that I do with women, it is entirely possible that when a woman repairs her relationship with food and her body, that she will lose weight. Of course it's possible. Um, if it's the right thing for her body, it'll happen. But I'm against this idea that when you get into alignment, you get thin. That that is what healing looks like. Being thin is what healing looks like. Biodiversity is a fact of human existence. And even before there was this rampant diet culture, there was biodiversity. There were different sized bodies that existed. Um, and so the belief that that when we heal and when we get into full alignment and when we are enlightened and zen and at peace with ourselves and happy and emotionally stable, that we will be thin, to me is just another diet culture belief that perpetuates 
you know, these insane ideals that women need to meet and that they will, you know, again, sacrifice themselves for. So as with the masterclass, I'm going to continue to try to use story to help discuss this idea about weight loss and, you know, what, what I'm against and what I'm not against. And, um, I look forward to to hearing what you guys think. So let's get going. One night, a girl looked up at the sky through a veil of clouds and saw that half the moon was missing. The moon is missing. The moon is missing. No one could convince her otherwise. In fact, she had seen it shrinking for some time, and every night came more proof of her worst fears. I was right. This conviction was a pathetic consolation. Where others might have seen a slice of shine, all she saw was the deepening hollow of absence. There is something you think you don't have. A virtue, quality, or substance you think you need to acquire. Courage, strength, patience, wisdom, compassion. As soon as I name it, you see it as missing from you, quick to disavow the suggestion that you are complete. I'm only human, you might say. I'm not at all whole and perfect. I'm injured, inadequate, and yes, even a little bit robbed, especially robbed. She tried filling the hole with tears, shrieks, and bluster. She bought a toaster, a Sub-Zero, and a Maserati, a pile of shiny objects, They overflowed her house and storage unit. All of it made a mess, but nothing more. You can't fill a hole that doesn't exist. And so exhausted, she gave up and sat down, head heavy, heart leaden. She didn't notice the shadows shifting into light, the wind lifting, the clouds parting, the days passing. One evening, she opened her eyes and saw the moon. It was full, of course. It had been full all along, doing what moons do, reflecting light. Only our perspective changes. We rob ourselves when we mistake the unreal for the real. Your heart is always whole, just as the moon is always full. Your life is always complete. You just don't see it that way. That reading was from the book Paradise in Plain Sight. Lessons from a Zen Garden by Karen Mason Miller. It's one of my all-time favorite books. And I I just adore Karen Mason Miller. She's a Zen Buddhist monk, <laughs> but she's like such a beautiful writer. She's honest and down-to-earth and funny. One of my favorite readings is from her book, Mama Zen. And she says, someone asked her daughter once what it's like to have a Zen Buddhist monk for a mother. And she said... Um, I don't know, she just screams a lot, (laughs) which I thought was like amazing and hilarious. And I'm like, I can relate to that, you know. And she also talks about this idea that she doesn't meditate to become this super-powered, enlightened human. She just does it because she has to, because her personality is so intense that the only way to manage it is by getting quiet. And that's totally the way I feel too. I... um in this process of like healing my relationship with my body and food and getting back in touch with my intuition after a number of sort of like quarter life setbacks with bad decision making. Um, I really dove into meditation super hard. I did a, a Vipassana retreat, which is uh, a 10 day silent, no talking 
no reading, no technology, just sitting and meditating for hours and hours and hours every day for 10 days retreat. And, um, yeah, a lot of people thought it was really crazy and, uh, that I was just insane for even thinking about doing it, but it was this incredibly, um, important part of me getting back in touch with that inner voice inside me. And again, I didn't do it because I think I'm better than anyone or because I'm more enlightened than anyone. I just did it because I'm intense. I'm impatient and rage filled. And, you know, I have the potential to like terrorize people around me and I can be a control freak. And this is a way, you know, meditation and getting in touch with my intuition is a way for me not only to to repair my relationship with food and my body but just to manage the parts of my personality that are so intense so anyway she's amazing I love her writing if you get a chance to read any of her books do it but this piece about the moon to me is about this idea that we're just incomplete and for women this manifests a million different ways in a million different days but weight is often the foundation upon which it is all built You know, if you think about um, all of the ways that we feel incomplete or inadequate as women, if you think about it like a Lego structure, to me, this dissatisfaction with our bodies and our weight is like the foundation upon which all the little Legos are built. You know, it's the, the green Lego base that all that we pile our structure on top of. And it's super challenging Because as I said in the intro, biodiversity is a fact and the diet culture messaging around weight would make us believe that it is not and that we are incomplete and not fully aligned and not fully healed until our weight is managed and until we get it down. And so I am not against weight loss. I am against the belief that we are incomplete until we lose weight. I am against the belief that we cannot show up in the world the way we want to until we lose weight. And I'm against all of the collateral damage that is caused by that belief. You know, because if it were true, then there would be, the statistic is that 67% of women in the United States, potentially a little bit different in Canada here, but not that much different, are in plus size bodies. If that were true, then 67% of women in North American culture would not be able to show up day to day the way they want to in the bodies they're in. And that just can't be true. It just cannot be allowed to continue or exist. The moon is always full. It's just our perspective that changes. It's just what we see that changes. And what I try to teach women is that when they feel like their bodies aren't in the place they should be in, that's a perspective, you know? It's all just hypothetical. If I could stick with this plan, if I could exercise this way, if I could do this, you know, That's all hypothetical. None of it exists in the here and now. What exists perfectly in the here and now is your body, the way that she is. And if you were to start showing up the way you want to show up in your life, and if you were to repair 
that relationship with food in your body. And if within that reparation, your body were to lose weight because it was the right thing for your body, then I'm cool with that. But the catch 22 that I try to to convey to women day in and day out, it's that the belief that your body is wrong and incomplete is the thing that triggers all of those negative behaviors and patterns, is the thing that keeps you feeling incomplete, is the thing that triggers reaction and compulsion. And so until you begin to see your body as complete and whole and correct and perfect in the moment, you can't begin to repair the behaviors that could potentially lead you to weight loss, or more importantly to me, because again, weight loss is not the goal. The goal to me is your most healthful, sustainable, enjoyable, comfortable, beautiful weight, whatever that is. So I'm not against weight loss. I'm against the belief that we're not whole if we are not losing weight or pursuing weight loss or at a specifically tightly rigidly defined weight. I'm also against the overbearing, overarching, overarching cultural belief that fat is bad. And so I want to read to you a piece by Sandra Salve and Esther Rothblum from a fat studies reader um, about this idea that our cultural all-consuming belief that fat is bad actually keeps us from being able to see deeper, bigger issues that affect our health and the way that we live in our, in our culture. Fat is bad. Isn't it odd that people deeply divided on almost every important topic can so easily and seemingly organically agree on the above assertion? Isn't it similarly strange that countries significantly divergent in culture, attitudes, and approaches apparently share the fat is bad sentiment? In fact, according to the popular media, one of the few disagreements that exists is which country is hardest hit by the so-called quote-unquote obesity epidemic. Consider the following contradictory statements. Somewhere along the way, Americans have supersized ourselves into becoming the fattest nation on earth, MSNBC 2003. Australia has become the fattest nation in the world, with more than 9 million adults now rated as obese or overweight, according to an alarming new report, Stark 2008. Canadian adults, both men and women, are the most obese in a survey of 63 nations that raises new health warnings for our country. Spears, 2007. Fat German citizens, the fattest in the European Union. Muller-Nothman, 2008. Now, heavyweight Brits are the fattest people in Europe. McRae, 2008. Regardless of which country is actually the fattest nation on earth, the United States quickly declared a war on fat with the support of former U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, the World Health Organization, Data on obesity in adults indicate that the United States ranks 20th, Australia 30th, and Canada 37th in global rates of, quote-unquote, obesity. 
Ranking ahead in the West are a number of nations in the Pacific, Fiji and Samoa, the Middle East, Kuwait and Jordan. Countries that have the greatest number of obese children include a number of nations in Eastern Europe, like Albania and Armenia, and some African nations like Algeria and Lesotho. What is fat studies? Fat studies scholars found the opinions about fat suspicious and began conducting research to examine these claims. Building on this foundation a few decades later, the field of fat studies emerged. In the tradition of critical race studies, queer studies, and women's studies, fat studies is an interdisciplinary field of scholarship marked by an aggressive, consistent, rigorous critique of the negative assumptions, stereotypes, and stigma placed on fat and the fat body. The field of fat studies invites scholars to pause, to interrupt the everyday thinking about fat or failure to think, and do something daring and bold. Learners must move beyond challenging assumptions. They must question the very questions that surround fatness and fat people. They must not be satisfied by noting that people diet and asking why. They must ask why we continue to expect people to diet. Who is oppressed by that pattern? To whom and to which industries and organizations do the resulting privileges flow? Fat studies requires approaching the construction of fat and fatness with a critical methodology. The same sort of progressive, systematic, academic rigor with which we approach negative attitudes and stereotypes about women, queer people, and racial groups. Fat study scholars can begin to explore the relevant categories and construction via three crucial intellectual steps. Examples related to children, the most innocent victims of the war on fat, and the U.S. export of anti-fat sentiment are listed below, though the steps work equally well for all affected groups. First, be suspicious of any non-neutral policy, attitude, or procedure where a line is drawn between fat and thin. Be especially skeptical when people are treated differently rights are denied, or an action is motivated by the desire to help a group that falls on either side of that line. For example, be suspicious of school-based exercise programs that are mandatory for fat children or cheerleading or dance programs where fat students are categorically excluded. Second, be aware of and alert to seemingly neutral policies that have different effects on groups based on their weight. For example, a policy requiring BMI, body mass index, to be listed on report cards, or a science teacher who weighs all children during class and has them calculate their BMI as an assignment is neutral, but will have a different impact on fat children than thin children. Third, keep the actual lives of fat people at the heart of the analysis. For example, fat children in the United States have repeatedly been taken out of loving homes and away from caring, capable parents based on nothing but the child's weight. Yet no general civil rights agency has provided legal assistance when asked to, let alone created a task force to focus on this discrimination. When policies are made to help fat people, are they addressing the issues that affect fat people? If not, how is this agenda being set? 
Some readers may find their critical inquiry interrupted by a rush to frame the weight discussion through the health discourse that dominates popular culture, where there is nothing to be gained from any fat endeavor except when the goal is fighting fat. They should consider where we stand with regard to unpacking obesity in comparison to the critical theory more established in academia. For example, today we do not stop our analysis after nothing after noting that people are treated differently based on race, nor do we stop after asking what race is. The field is well established, and the deeper questions about the social construction of race come reasonably naturally. For example, how and why did we establish categories of race as known today? How have they changed, and why do we continue to use them? But in earlier stages of the field's development, those questions were likely to be buried behind the distracting public discourse of the time. This moment in fat studies provides us with the rare chance to experience the development of a critical studies field while propaganda is at its peak. We must make our own paths. This is quite a reward, one that only scholars studying at a particular crossroads can experience, and one that provides a unique window into our own ability, not just to see outside the box, but also to first see and experience the box for ourselves. So, whew! That's heavy, huh? Um, And reading from academic text is not something that I'll do a lot because I know that it's a lot to listen to. But what I want you to get out of that, what I want you to hear is that we we are still in the box of fat is bad. And because we are in the fo- in the box, because that is the current discourse, there are many questions that are not being asked, explored, or researched properly, even when we're researching weight and health, even when we're looking into the connection. Because there is this deep underlying belief that fat is bad and weight loss is good, There are so many things that we're ignoring. There's so many questions we aren't asking. There are so many ways in which we stigmatize plus size bodies that we consider neutral, that we don't even recognize. And so again, in this work that I do, I'm not against weight loss. I'm against the belief that weight loss is necessarily good for us. I'm against the belief that weight loss is a goal, that it's an ideal, that it's an ideal outcome, and that we, we should sacrifice ourselves for it. And then the last thing that I want to talk about today in this whole idea of like, if I'm not against weight loss, what am I against, is this idea of all of the collateral damage that is caused when we pursue weight loss because we believe it is the ideal outcome and it will lead us to healthier, happier, better lives. For me personally, the whole body food issue stuff started with this desire to be healthier. And then it kind of spiraled into the realization that um, so many people were actually aware of and judging my body and weight and that spiraled into 
um, kind of an obsession with maintaining weight and um, using lots of different eating and exercising and um, justifications around health to continue to stay in this weird spirally place with food. But it didn't last that long until I remember saying to myself, um, really frustratingly and exasperated, you know, I'm so sick of this. Like, I just wish that I didn't have all this information about food. I wish I could just go back to that old me who was naturally super moderate and liked movement and existed in the very average size body that I was in and wasn't worried about all of the minutiae and the obsession around how healthy something was or or how many calories or how how much sugar or carbohydrate was in it. And, you know, what I was identifying was that this influx, this insane amount of obsessing about nutrition and food was was just a byproduct of my desire to to keep my body looking a certain way at a certain weight, a specific size, a specific shape. And that's the collateral damage. I mean, that's it. When weight is the ideal, when weight loss is the ideal outcome, when a thin body is the ideal outcome, what slowly begins to manifest is this tumultuous relationship with food and exercise, this inability to behave normally and naturally around food and movement. And so I'm going to read to you from Lena Dunham's book, Not That Kind of Girl. And I know Lena can be a bit controversial, but I love this chapter um, called Diet is a Four-Letter Word, How to Remain 10 Pounds Overweight Eating Only Health Food. Um, Yeah, I'll just dive in and we can talk about it after. As a child, I developed a terrible fear of being anorexic. This was brought on by an article I had read in a teen magazine, which was accompanied by some upsetting images of emaciated girls with hollow eyes and folded hands. Anorexia sounded horrible. You were hungry and sad and bony, yet every time you looked in the mirror at your 80-pound frame, you saw a fat girl looking back at you. If you took it too far, you had to go to a hospital away from your parents. The article described anorexia as an epidemic spreading across the nation like the flu or the E. coli you could get from eating at a jack-in-the-box hamburger place. So I sat at the kitchen counter eating my dinner and hoping I wasn't next. Over and over, my mother tried to explain that you don't just become anorexic overnight. Did I feel that instinct to stop eating, she wondered? No. I really liked eating, and why wouldn't I? My diet up to that point consisted entirely of organic hamburger patties, spinach and cheese ravioli, which I called grass ravioli, and pancakes my dad made in the shape of mice or guns. I was told that eating, really eating, was the only way to become big and strong and smart. Because I was little. So little. Even though my favorite foods were Doritos, steak, Sara Lee pound cake, preferably still half-frozen. Stouffer's French bread pepperoni pizzas, my Irish nanny's shepherd's pie, and huge hunks of goose liver pate eaten with my bare hands as a snack. My mother denies having let me eat raw hamburger meat and drink a cup of vinegar, but I know that both happened. I wanted to taste it all. When I was born, I was a very, I was very fat for a baby, 11 pounds, which sounds thin to me now. I had three chins and a stomach that drooped to one side of my stroller. I never crawled, just rolled, an early sign that I was going to be resistant to most exercise and any sexual position that didn't allow me to relax on my back. 
But by my third birthday, something began to change. My black hair fell out and grew in blonde. My chins melted away. I walked into kindergarten as a tiny, tan little dreamboat. I can remember spending what must have been hours as a kid, looking in the mirror, marveling at the beauty of my own features, the sharp line of my hip, the downy hairs on my legs, my soft golden ponytail. I still envy my own eight-year-old self, standing confidently on a Mexico beach in a French bikini, then breaking for nachos and coke. Then the summer after eighth grade, I got my period. My dad and I were taking a walk in the country when I felt something ticklish on my inner thigh. I looked down to see a thin trail of blood making its way toward my ankle sock. Papa, I murmured. His eyes welled up. Well, he said, in pygmy cultures, you'd have to start having children right about now. He called my mother, who rushed home from her errands with a box of tampons and a meatball sub. I soon gained 30 pounds. Starting high school is hard enough without all your favorite nightgowns becoming belly shirts. But here I was, a slip of a thing, suddenly shaped like a gummy bear. I wasn't obese, but a senior did tell me I looked like a bowling ball with a hat on. According to my mother, some of it was hormonal. Some of it was the result of the medication that was keeping my obsessive-compulsive disorder in check. All of it was alienating. It was alien and alienating. This was the same year that I became vegan. This was inspired by a love of puppies and also a cow who winked at me on a family vacation to St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Rationally, I knew the cow was probably attempting to remove a fly on its lid without the aid of arms, but the wink, that seemingly irrefutable sign of sentience, stirred something in me, a fear of causing another creature pain, of not acknowledging their suffering. I maintained the position for nearly 10 years, occasionally lapsing into vegetarianism and beating myself up about it. When I was 17 years old, I even had a vegan dinner party that was chronicled in the style section of the New York Times. Headline, a crunchy menu for a youthful crowd and catered by a now defunct establishment called the Veg City Diner. I wore my grandmother's Dior insisted on shoelessness, leather was a no-no, and explained to the reporter that while I didn't care much about the Iraq war, I was very concerned by our nation's casual attitude toward bovine murder. While my veganism began as a deeply felt moral position, it soon morphed into a not very effective eating disorder. I never thought of it as a diet, but it was a way to limit the vast world of food that I had once loved so dearly. I had the feeling I could go mad if not given boundaries. I'd be like that guy who drank the ocean and still wasn't satisfied. I fell in love with Kathy Comics one afternoon at my grandmother's house, flipping through the Hartford Courant. They weren't printed in the New York Times, our household's newspaper of choice. So every week after that, my grandmother carefully snipped them out of her newspaper and mailed them to me. No note. I would savor them after school over a half a box of cookies, laboring to understand each joke. Kathy liked food and cats. She couldn't resist a sale or a carbohydrate. No men seemed to care for her. I could relate. By the time I reached high school, I no longer read Kathy, but I did act like her. I'm thinking particularly of a shower I took where the lower half of my body was under the running water and the upper half was laid out on the bath mat eating a loaf of bread. Side note, bread tends to be vegan. 
college was an orgy of soy ice cream, overstuffed burritos, and bad Miss Western pizza. Inhaled at 3 a.m. I didn't think very much about my weight or how food made me feel or the fact that what I ate might be having an impact on how I looked. My friends and I seem to be running a codependent overeaters network. You need and deserve that brownie. Hey, are you going to finish that risotto? When a friend of my mom's, who I didn't know very well, died, I ate a massive panini using grief management as my excuse. I didn't get on a scale until after a, a year after I graduated. I maintained the childlike perspective that weighing yourself was something you only did at the doctor's office, and if you were being offered a lollipop as compensation. Occasionally, I would walk into the kitchen in my underwear, stand sideways to display what I considered abs, and remark to my mother, I think I'm losing weight. She would nod politely and return to organizing the Sondheim section of her iTunes library. At my annual gynecological exam, they stuck me on the scale. I think I'm around 140, I told the nurse, who nodded and smiled as she inched the numbers upward. It clunked and thunked until finally it settled at a hair below 160. We'll say 159, she offered charitably. 159? 159? This couldn't be right. This wasn't me. This wasn't my body. This was a mistake. I think your scale is broken, I told her. I wasn't like this at home. On my way out, I called my friend Isabel, hot and tearful. I think I might have a thyroid problem, I cried. Come over. Isabel sat in my kitchen, eating turkey from the package, listening patiently while I lay down on the marble countertop and moaned, I'm so fat. I'm just growing and growing. I'm going to be too big to fit through the door of any clubs. We don't go to any clubs, she said. But if we did, you would have to carry me on a domed silver tray like a piece of pork. I grew defensive against my own judgment, and anyway, 160 pounds is not that big. It's like 30 pounds bigger than most tall models. So here I was in the waiting room of my mother's nutritionist, Vinny. After all these years, she had won. A note about my parents. They have a wide variety of holistic professionals on call. One of my earliest memories is being clutched tightly by my mother's psychic, Dimitri, who smelled of essential oils and walked around our house investigating energies. He told me I was going to live well into my 90s while I was just trying to watch TGIF. Vinny was unintimidating. He spoke lovingly of the Staten Island home he shared with his mother, but he didn't spare me the rod when explaining that this weight gain wasn't, in fact, the result of a wayward thyroid. No, it was the result of too much sugar. I had, I told him, been eating 11 tangerines a day. Not enough healthy fat, mild anemia, general overeating. He gave me some great basic principles. Eat protein, avoid sugar, have breakfast. And he made it clear that every time I ate a cookie or a hunk of baguette, I was filling my body with unusable calories, unnecessary inflammation jamming my gears. He told Isabel, who also wanted to tune up, that the most digestible alcohol was champagne and that there's nothing wrong with eating a lot of olive oil. To my mind, Isabel didn't need his help, considering she once lost 20 pounds eating an entire angel food cake a day and nothing else, but I was glad to have a comrade in arms. At Vinny's urging, I began to keep track of what I consumed, down to the almond, in an iPhone app, and lost nearly 20 pounds in a few months. I sat at my temp job, my snacks for the day lined up on my desk in front of me, waiting for the moment I could add them to my log. I both dreaded and cherished the last bite of the day usually another almond. I couldn't see the difference in my body, but my scale and my mother assured me I was shrinking. 
Every pound lost made me giddy, but at the same time, a voice inside me screamed, who is this lady you've become? You are a pot-bellied riot girl. Why are you plugging your caloric intake into your smartphone? What followed was a year of yo-yo dieting, hence this journal entry from the end of 2009. I started to consider dieting and weight for the first time, going from 152 to 145 pounds, to 160 pounds, to 142 pounds. Now, as I write this, I'm about 148 pounds, and my goal is to reach 139 by February, but more on that later. Throughout much of that year, I was the world's least successful occasional bulimic. I understood the binging part of the equation fairly well, but after stuffing my face with all the readily available cookies and soy cheese, I would drift into a stupor and forget to try and vomit. When I finally came to, all I could summon were dry heaves and a string of the celery I ate nine or ten hours ago, despite or during a more hopeful time. My face puffy, my stomach aching, I'd fall asleep like a fluey baby and awake the next morning with a vague awareness that something terrible had gone down between the hours of 11.30 and 1. Once my father noticed a constellation of broken capillaries around my eyes and asked me gently, "'What the fuck did you do to your face?' I cried, I told him, a lot. Another time I announced my intention to puke up a box of pralines to my sister, who then banged on the locked bathroom door, crying and screaming while I labored over the toilet. It didn't even work, I told her, stalking back into my room. A friend once told me that when you've been to AA, drinking is never fun again. And that's how I feel about having seen a nutritionist. I will never again approach food in an unbridled, guilt-free way. And that's okay, but I think of those college years as the time before I was expelled from Eden. What follows are entries from a 2010 journal chronicling my attempts to lose weight. This has been, up until now, the most secret and humiliating document on my computer, kept more hidden than my list of passwords or the index of those I've encountered sexually. And so this is me, Jill, taking over from Lena. You know, what she does is is what you see is her chronicling the beginning of the diet very clearly. This like, this kind of sad breakdown of every single thing she eats, the type of food, the number of calories, you know, to the decimal basically, followed by journal entries. And it goes from, you know, very puritanical and, you know, she's decided she's only going to eat 1500 calories a day and it's all for good health into this, this eating spiral, this end point of the diet where she can no longer keep it together. And like I said, the, the journal entries are so interesting because She's maniacally keeping track of every calorie she eats. And the journal entries range from, um, you know, something like this journal is is a place to record all of the conflicting, intense emotions I have about food and to free myself of them. It's about more than calories. I decided I will weigh myself every Sunday so I know I'm on the right track. Today, I weighed 149.5 pounds on my mom's scale. I'm not going to obsess about weight, but a positive goal would be to be 139 pounds by November 12th, premiere of Tiny Furniture. I'm going to make strides to make that happen, taking my supplements, listening to my body, avoiding gluten, refined sugar, booze, a lot of red meat and fats, and going to Physique 57 class, even though the women there are all engaged to be married and mean. <laughs> so it ranges from that um, to like, I had diarrhea today. Maybe it's from the smooth move tea, which I'm oddly addicted to. It tastes like chocolate, like laxative teas that she's addicted to. 
to like, okay, I'm not going to be so extreme anymore, you know, to like, I feel like total shit, a stomach thing and general fluiness, no appetite, but I'm still doing great with my food attitude, should have had more veggies and less sugar. Um, to all, to all the way to the end when, you know, she's, she's just belligerently binge eating and the journal entry is just, I went totally nuts and ate all the things. And, you know, this is the collateral damage. So many women pursue weight loss because they believe it's the healthy thing to do. They believe that they're out of control and their bodies can't be trusted and that the only way to get things under control is to start to maniacally manipulate and control food and exercise. And the thing that will tell them how well they're doing is how much they weigh. And instead of getting weight down and feeling in a peaceful, healthy place, what we see is like a yo-yo spiral, never again peaceful relationship with food and exercise. Weight tends to not go down, but go down and back up, down and back up, down and a little bit more up to the point where women actually begin to put on weight. They actually begin to break the thermostat. And so No, I'm not against weight loss if you have a healthy relationship with food and movement. But the question I would like to ask is, if weight were not the ultimate marker of our failures or our success, if weight was not the ideal outcome, if Lena had found herself at the end of university, having totally pieced out from her body and in a place of discomfort and not feeling healthy and realizing that she's eating foods that don't make her feel physically well and someone had instead gently aided her in tuning back into her body and listening to when her body's hungry and full and listening to what her her body wants to eat and allowing her to eat work foods and play foods and balance those things naturally without external ideals about how food should look and how bodies should look and what weight should be. Would she been ejected from Eden? Would she be in that place that I found myself in when I was in my 20s of just feeling like, I wish I didn't have all this information. I wish I didn't know. I wish I could just go back to that innocent girl who was like living in her body and eating what she thought was healthy foods, which, you know, in contrast to where most women end up with food actually is a really healthy, moderate place with food. Um, You know, what would the world look like if that was the kind of instruction that women got when they found themselves in a body that felt unhealthy and uncomfortable? When they had the realization that they were emotionally eating, not in not in like a a normal way because because all people emotionally eat, but in a in a pathological way that was making them feel bad, where there was a negative net outcome. You know, sometimes we eat emotionally and it just actually feels really good and there's no negative net outcome. It just helps. And then other times when we're emotionally eating or binge reactive eating, you know, the net no the net outcome is negative. And to me, that's when things become quite pathological. And when we realize that there's an issue with food. Um, Yeah, how would the world be different? How would our relationship with our bodies and food be different? If we were given different direction, 
when we felt we'd gone astray with our body. So this is it. I'm not against weight loss. To be clear, I don't promote obesity. I'm not against thin bodies. What I'm against is the belief that fat just across the board is bad, that losing weight across the board is good, the unnatural extents that women go to sacrificing many other pieces of their health in order to pursue or obtain or maintain weight loss. And finally, the collateral damage of pursuing weight loss at all costs, which is a stressed, complicated, challenging relationship with food and feeding ourselves. And I can't remember where I first heard this quote, so I can't, um, I can't attribute it properly. If anybody knows, feel free to let me know. But the quote goes something like, as we attempt to make our bodies smaller, so too do our lives get smaller. And I think you can see it so beautifully in that chapter of Lena's book where, you know, the more and more she pursues weight loss, the more and more she chronicles every calorie and every snack and every bit of movement that all of the things that she hopes to come from weight loss <laughs> get sacrificed. The freedom, the fun, the pleasure, the glamour, the the admiration. Like I, I see this in women every day and we have to talk about it a lot. Like what has to be sacrificed in order to pursue the weight loss? What we give up in order to pursue the weight loss and in attempting to gain all of the ease that we associate with the life of someone in a thinner body, we give all of that up in pursuing the attempt to get the thinner body. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in this episode that, um, or this podcast that I went, when I was sort of healing my relationship with my body and my intuition on a really deep level, I went to this Vipassana meditation retreat. And one of the most interesting things to come out of doing that retreat was actually that I started dreaming again. And I hadn't even realized that I'd stopped dreaming, but I had. And so I started dreaming while I was there. And when I came back from that 10-day silent meditation retreat, I continued to dream. And one night, I had this dream where I was walking down a very narrow, sort of circular, dark staircase. And I could hear noise and sort of a party below. But I'm walking down this quiet, dark, spiral staircase. And on both walls on either side of me, as I spiral down the stairs, I just see these, you know, gallery walls of photos, all different shapes and sizes and frames. And they're pictures of my friends from high school and university and they're all together and they're having experiences and they're traveling and they're camping and they're at parties and they're having fun and I'm not in any of them and as I get to the bottom of the stairs the party at the bottom gets louder and all of a sudden I sort of enter into this room and it's this like warm room and there's lots of light and 
it's all my friends and they're having this big party and they're so excited to see me and they welcome me with open arms and it's one of them is getting married and I didn't even know she was getting married let alone that there was a wedding and everyone again is just so warm and welcoming and they're so happy to have me there and as I wake up there's this really deep realization like this deep grief of all of the things that I lost in those few years in my early 20s in the pursuit of maintaining an incredibly thin body and to a lesser extent in the decade or so that followed to a much lesser extent but it was still there as I tried to heal it and you know when I work with really young women who are going through this it's that thing that You know, it makes me feel so old, but it's like that thing that I wish I could just teach them and show them like what they're giving up. I wish I could just like, like, like transport my brain into their brain so that they can see the sacrifice with perspective outside of it. But of course I can't, you know, it's something that they, this is a challenge for them. This is their obstacle to overcome and I can't do it for them. And it's one of the things that with women who are older, who are in their 30s or 40s or 50s that are dealing with this, that we have to spend a lot of time grieving is this this loss of time. And that is what I'm against. That is what I'm continuing to rail against. So that's it. That's it for the episode today. Um, I'll be back soon with a new Food Freedom Body Love Method podcast. Um, Until then, I urge you to check out The Collective. Um, Depending on when you're listening to this, we're just, I'm I'm launching it. The Collective begins on April 16th, um, but know that you can join any time. And it is the opportunity to dive deeper in a more practical way into lots of different ideas around body, weight, beauty, and health. Our first month is going to be um, focused on radiant body and digging into the concept of having a radiant body and what that what that means and what that looks like. And I think actually next week um, I'll do a podcast called Radiant Body just to give you a taste of some of the information that we're going to be talking about and exploring in the collective to get you thinking about it, to get you interested because, you know, inside the collective is where so much more conversation can happen and where we can get really deep, really a lot deeper into how to apply this as an individual. The podcast I think is amazing for, you know, stimulating thought and conversation But I'm hoping that the collective, while continuing to inspire conversation and thought processes, will also um, be more applicable on an individual level. So hope to see you in there. All you have to do is go to foodfreedombodylove.com and check out the collective. Um, It's $25 a month and at the risk of being not so humble, I want to say that I think that it's probably the best thing that you could possibly potentially do for your health at this given moment, you know, is enter into a whole new framework for women in terms of living beautifully in the body you're in right this very moment. So lots of love. Have a great week. Talk soon.